Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the coronavirus pandemic and then be joined by pastor and author Mark Vrogop. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Happy Monday afternoon. Ian, was that mm-hmm. was that snow that I saw this morning? Did did that happen today? I, I don't wish to speak of it. <laughs> That's always the first one's always a little disconcerting, no matter when it comes. Well, and uh, all of my friends who live in warmer climates, too, like uh, anytime I make a if I make a public comment, it's instant. It's all like sunny photos from their Florida porch. And they're like, not here. I'm in shorts. I'm like, thanks, man. Thanks. <laughs> the, ans- the answer to that is cut off any friends in the South. Just they're done. You're done with anyone who's in warm weather. <laughs> Well, we're glad that you're joining us today on this Monday afternoon, as cold as it might be. As a reminder, a couple of places you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk online, 1160hope.com, and the podcast. Wherever it is, you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, that does help us out a bunch. And uh, you know what we tend to like to do in these first segments is, uh, like we've always said, we're not a big news show, but to kind of hit some of the newsier items of the day right off the bat. And I chose three for us today that all kind of touch on the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and the first is this. I wonder if you saw this, Ian, over the weekend. The White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, uh, said, we're not going to control the pandemic. It's contagious virus. And basically saying that the White House is just trying to uh, mitigate it and get the vaccine out there, but that you can't control this at all and that that's not the goal. Now, President Trump walked that back a little bit today. I'm wondering if you heard that and when you heard that. I, that was a little disconcerting to hear that from the highest reaches of our government, wouldn't you say? I heard it. It wasn't the first time I've heard things like that. Um, I, pro- I mean, I, I certainly think I would have worded it differently, but I, yeah, I, I mean, I've heard a number of medical professionals say, Oh, we're all getting it. Like that's you know yeah. that's that's kind of unavoidable. So I, yeah, I, I didn't I didn't find it to be terribly alarming or any any more alarming than it has been. I guess. Yeah, and then here in Illinois, uh, we've kind of especially where you and I both live. You're in DuPage County, right, Naperville? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in uh, DuPage County, we've moved uh, backwards in a phase. Uh, restaurants, uh, indoor dining is closed now, and uh, gatherings and some other things. Uh, and just today I was setting up a meeting with somebody and we set it for Panera and I had to text him back going, uh, wait a minute, we can't do that. Right. Like it was just really strange. And, uh, there was an article in the, uh, Chicago Tribune today that says this Pritzker's COVID-19 shutdown and the death of those great independent restaurants that we love. You posted something about this the other day. I think one of your favorite restaurants in Elgin, uh, talk to us a little bit about this opinion piece and specifically, uh, what the uh, author here is saying is going to happen to the restaurants in our towns. Well, here's how it begins. Is that what will Governor J.B. Pritzker's legacy and that of other political coronavirus lockdown artists look like? Like this, the end of great independent restaurants and bars that you love, places that give Chicago its character, replaced by the, oh boy, I always get this word wrong. How do you say that word? Uh, which word replaced by the hegam- hegami, hegemony. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, think you, I think you added an extra syllable in there. I just it always makes me feel better if you also don't know what it is. <laughs> Replaced by the hegemony of crappy corporate food. Consider the future. Uh, a Chili's on one corner, a TGI Fridays, or an Applebee's on the other. It goes on. Say goodbye to the independent places that give Chicago its life. You know the place. It's where you get that great Greek chicken or those delicious hand-ground burgers. 
it is an opinion piece. It's going on to kind of really point the finger at Pritzker in particular with regards to uh, lockdown restrictions and how strict they have been. And uh, I imagine, I mean, it. I will just say anecdotally, it has been eerie the couple of times that we've walked around downtown Naperville and, yeah. you know, didn't see it on the news, but you walk by and you see a building with the sign that's down or windows boarded and you're like, oh man, wasn't that the fill in the blank? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. isn't that where we, like that, that is legitimately really hard. I also know of an, a number of restaurants and restaurant owners who've gotten really, really creative uh, with how they're, how they're scheduling things, how they're dealing with the, you know, the moving target of restrictions. And I hear a lot of news about communities really rallying around these, right. these mom and pop places. So at the very least, I would say uh, now is not the time to let up on that. I mean, mm. and again, I'm not this isn't like a knock on Applebee's and Chili's. I guess it, <laughs> it kind of is a little bit. They're going to be fine. Um, this is the time, I think, to do everything that we can you know, to rally alongside these these local independent mom and pop places, which, you know, is going to probably require some creativity on our end. But I, I think it's it's a really worthwhile effort. Yeah, and there's certainly some restaurants in the area who are trying to stay open and kind of uh, break, you know, they're, they're saying we can't handle this, so we're going to stay open and questions of what's going to happen to them. But I think your call there is correct. Uh, most of the restaurants are going to follow the the directives and do what they have to do. And so it's on us, you know, when you're getting takeout, when you're uh, thinking, when you would have normally gone out, go uh, patronize these places. The last one uh, is a story we've been talking about a lot, and it's at Christian Headlines. It says this. Uh, three from John MacArthur's church test positive for the coronavirus. Three individuals in a California megachurch that has opposed pandemic health restrictions have tested positive for COVID-19. The health department said it will work with the congregation, Grace Community Church, to determine if the virus has spread further. The houses of worship are required under county rules to report to the health department when three individuals among the staff or attendees test positive for the virus within 14 days. It is not known if the individuals work at the church or our members or attendees. And so you and I have talked a ton about John MacArthur and his stance and his church's stance. This is the first time we've heard definitively that there's COVID-19 in his church. And on the one hand, I'm like, well, three out of 800 doesn't seem like much, but who knows how many it is. So this is once again, a bit of a wake up call. I wonder what, what were your thoughts when you first heard about what happened at Grace Community Church in California? Yeah, probably similar to yours. You know, at first blush, you think, well, three out of 800 or whatever the actual you know number of the uh, the congregation is doesn't seem like much. But having now known a number of people who have tested positive and then seeing, you know, even just through social media, how quickly stuff like that can spread and has spread. Uh, it seems like three very rarely remains three. But you right. know, this article goes on to mention that MacArthur has said in the past he'd be willing to go to jail over his church's stance. What, what I don't understand, the, I guess the part that still seems odd to me is when given the option to do something outside, they didn't seem to even consider that. Like it was That's like, right. no, we have to gather and it has to be indoors. And, it, and again, I might be squishy on the details here, but it seemed like the state wasn't giving all that strict regulations on gathering outside. They're in California. Like there's certainly right. something that they could have attempted and maybe they did and they just didn't have the bandwidth or the resources for whatever. Like, at the very least, it does seem like uh, you had other options available to you. Um, I think of even, you know, the Sean Foyt concert from uh, from yesterday at Washington, D.C. I don't know if you watched any of that. Uh, yeah, it, it is. It's an interesting time to watch to watch these sort of different ideologies all kind of 
crash together on themselves. Yeah, you got Mark Dever at Capitol Hill Baptist in D.C. where they also sued, but it was much more like, please let us be outside. And he was kind of working with the officials. And so different stances. And so it's going to be interesting. None of us, obviously, this should go without saying, but uh, none of us wish uh, any ill on this church, even though they might have taken stances we, we were, you know, maybe disagree with. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much uh, for joining us today. And we're thrilled to be joined all the way from Indianapolis, Indiana. We're excited to be joined by Mark Vrogop. Mark is a pastor and an author, as we said, from Indianapolis. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, guys, thanks for having me on your program. It is a delight to be able to have a conversation with you. Appreciate your interest in the subject. Yeah, absolutely. It's our pleasure. Why don't you, as we get started here, just introduce yourself to our audience any way you see fit. Awesome. Well, you mentioned I'm a pastor. I'm also a husband and a father. I've got four kids and I'm a coffee roaster. So I like uh, (laughs) coffee beans. I'm a wannabe triathlete. And um, I just uh, enjoy spending time with my family, pastoring a church and doing some writing things to try and be helpful to God's people. So, Mark, I'm going to try and suppress the envy I feel toward your life right now just to get to the <laughs> questions that I want to ask. But this might feel strange, actually, but you wrote a book about one of the topics that I feel most strongly about, and that is lament. It's called Weep With Me, How Lament Opens a Door for Racial Reconciliation. Before we kind of drill down deep, would you just give us sort of a 30,000 foot perspective on what the book's about and why you wrote it? Yeah, Weep With Me came out of a journey in our church and through my own life as I began exploring the subject of lament. So my first book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, uh, explores lament in a category of grief that came out of our own journey with the stillbirth of a daughter in 2004. Mm. And while I was writing that book, there was a movement and a conversation about racial reconciliation happening in our church. And I just began to notice some amazing parallels between what I was learning about lament And what my black brothers and sisters were walking through. And I began to wonder, what if we could actually learn to lament together? How might that help serve the church, not only about grief, but particularly to serve the cause of racial reconciliation? And so we walked on a journey to try and discover some of those things. And the book traces some of the learnings from that process and uh, a thing that we're still trying to figure out. But I found that the language of lament uh, doesn't solve all the problems but it can be a game changer in terms of how we have the conversation about this uh, really challenging issue of racial reconciliation in the church. Oh, that's great. This conversation, like you said, of racial reconciliation, you said it was going on in your church. Uh, I'm curious, how did it start? Uh, What was that process like just within your church, even before you wrote this book? Started with just a couple guys uh, talking to one of our pastors, a couple of uh, minority church members, just saying, hey, where does this fall on the continuum of priority in terms of conversations within our church? They began meeting regularly at McDonald's for just uh, a weekly conversation to just talk about their experience, um, kind of how to process that as a predominantly white church. Uh, And then over a period of about three to four years, made its way into our elders. Um, I got engaged more uh, directly in trying just to help um, create some venues for our minority church members just to share, hey, here's our life experience. Here's what we've walked through. Here's what we've even experienced at this particular church. And then what can we do in love 
believing that Christ has made us one to walk together when we have very different experiences um, in life. And that led to um, a civil rights vision trip. We took two of them, 50 leaders on a bus for five days, going to Birmingham and Selma and Montgomery and Memphis, where we not only do life together, we lament together, we experience history together for the purpose of figuring out, look, how do we live together? Right. And so that's it's been a bumpy ride. It's been a good ride. It's been a, a challenging one for sure. But I've seen the way that lament as a starting point can really be a helpful part of that conversation. You know, I tend to find that people are pretty surprised when you tell them like, you know, more than a third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. We have a whole book called Lamentations. Jeremiah wishes he'd never been born. Job has this, you know, really intense experience. Right. And and around this conversation regarding racial reconciliation, I find a lot of people want to jump right to the activism, right? How do we how do we make change happen? I'd love to know from your perspective why is why is lament such an important component in like the much grander effort towards reconciliation? You know, lament is uh, an important action step that can be taken that's not the wrong kind of action step. So think of it as a husband, uh, you know, when, when my wife is grieving or she's sorry uh, or hurting over something, like my tendency is to want to fix it. And that's the right. worst thing that I can do. But if I want to fix it, the best thing I can do is to live in her pain with her and to weep with her so that then I can help her move forward. And that's the same thing that I found to be the case um, as a white evangelical pastor that I can do for my minority church members. And so I have this model that looks sounds like this. We need to love, then listen, then lament, then learn, and then leverage. And if you put lament in the right place, it actually helps you to learn and helps you to leverage. But if you try and leverage before you lament, you, you really could end up doing damage. Or if you try and learn without entering into the grief, you don't learn in the right kind of way. And so following kind of that model with biblical underpinnings of, look, we're one in Christ, we're going to love one another. I'm going to take the posture of James 1, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and to listen. Mm -hmm. If you kind of walk through that, it actually can be helpful in moving the conversation forward. Again, doesn't solve all the problems. Yeah. It's not a surefire, you know, silver bullet, but it, I've seen the way that it helps. Yeah, and you kind of, I think you used the phrase before, it's been a bumpy road, kind of up and down for your church through this process. Uh, I'm wondering how your church is different now. And I know it's an ongoing process, but even how's your church now different than, say, five years ago or so as you started this journey? Well, you know, before COVID, um, mm -hmm. I could have answered that question a lot easier because I could <laughs> yeah. look at everybody in the face. Yeah. So some of that, to be very honest with you, is I'm not exactly sure right now because mm -hmm. I, I only am seeing particular segments of our church. And that's one of the hard providences of this uh, situation. I think that um, we're in some respects better at the conversation in some spaces but also it has created, even with the George Floyd situation, the, the lines have become starker, even with the evangelicalism. You know, the, the, the lines in terms of the discussions are, um, are harder, are being drawn in a harder way, if you will. And mm -hmm. so it, it's kind of like the best of best and the worst of both worlds. In some spaces, it's really, really encouraging. In other spaces, it's like, man, we got a lot of work to do. Because um, once you kind of enter into this, it, it sort of uncovers additional conversations right. and layers that you didn't know were there. And I think that happens in a family. It happens in a small group and it happens in a church. And 
I think any church when they walk through this is going to experience that. And that's part of what we're in the process of figuring out. And Mark, what do you say to someone who is maybe hearing all of this for the first time and they're they're wondering, what's the difference between lament and just you know feeling sad about something about being bummed out like what what are some of the differences and maybe we know you're sticking around for another segment but maybe maybe one or two suggestions for how to better like enter into biblical lament yeah my, my definition of a lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust and so mm-hmm. the difference between just being sad and lament is that lament is directional it's meant to lead you somewhere uh, four elements turn to god lay out your complaint secondly ask him for help, and then choose to trust. And so lament is process-oriented, where we talk to God, and together we talk to God about our pain. So rather than just being sorry and feeling having feelings of sadness, which aren't illegitimate, lament leverages that and says, let's do something with it. Let's talk to God and pray for the purpose of recommitting our hearts to placing our hope and confidence in him. And that's why in my first book, I argue that to cry is human, but to lament is Christian. It's deeply theological. It's intentional. It's the way that we take all of our pain to God. Mm-hmm. Another voice you hear is Mark Vrogopi. Mark is the lead pastor of College Park Church in Indianapolis, as well as the author of a book we're talking about now, Weep With Me, How Lament Opens a Door for Racial Reconciliation. And Mark is kind enough that he's going to join us for another segment. So be sure to stick around here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. We're grateful to have you joining us today. Uh, And for a second segment, we're glad to be joined by Mark Vrogop. Mark is the lead pastor of College Park Church in Indianapolis, as well as the author of a relatively new book called Weep With Me, How Lament Opens a Door for Racial Reconciliation. But Mark, uh, even off air, you were telling us a little bit that like your main concern about this book is not for it's not social. It's not even the workplace. It's the church. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm a pastor. I serve in a church and I believe the gospel and uh, I want to see the gospel lived out in every arena of life, including this one. And I think gospel unity creates racial harmony. I think it's the story of the church. Uh, Acts chapter 11 in Antioch, the first place people are called Christians, uh, was a segregated city. And the people in the city didn't know what to call these people who were gathering. And there were Jews and Greeks. There were people from all walks of life. And they gave them the name Christian. And I just think that fundamental to what it means for the church to be the church is that there's an identity that gets underneath all other identities, the identity of Christ, that then informs our ethnicity, which is why Paul said here in the church, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So if any organization in the world has a hope of actually seeing reconciliation, mm-hmm. it, should, it should be the people who know that word reconciliation, the church. Sadly, that's not been the case. The church hasn't normally led in this effort, particularly in the United States. And I just love to see the church reclaim its gospel witness in um, trumpeting the opportunity for people from different ethnicities to love one another because they're in Christ. See, now I love that you bridge those two things too, because I, I don't think it'll come as a surprise to most people that like the vast majority of the songs that we sing on Sunday, for example, are not songs of lament. It's always rejoice, right? It's always up and to the right. And so you write a book talking about racial reconciliation, also the significance of lament kind of within that journey, something that Brian and I have been trying to do a whole lot more since George Floyd and then following numerous opportunities for us to just simply 
pause and grieve and lament. What, why do you think we in the church in particular so often kind of run from lament? It feels like the early church had a very significant place for lament, but we, we don't seem to really know what to do with it. Why, why do you think that is? Hmm. That's a great question, and it's a big issue, isn't it? I mean, you look at the songs that we sing uh, and uh, even the <clears throat> the books that we want to read. I think part of it is because while optimism is a really good thing and it's a part of the fabric of even kind of the American dream, uh, the fact remains is that much of life is really, really hard. And I think that for many people, they have an underdeveloped understanding of the role of suffering. They have an mm-hmm. underdeveloped understanding of what it means to grieve. And that's part of the reason why I wrote my first book was just because our experience as grieving parents and as a grieving pastor was that people didn't know what to do with our pain. Mm-hmm. And even though a third of the lament or a third of the Psalms are laments, we people just don't realize how important that language is until they get into a moment where they absolutely need it. And then it's a refreshment to their soul. Mm-hmm. So I think it's an underdevelopment of our of how we think about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be spiritual, what it means to be godly, and even then how we've experienced life in the world. So, for instance, you know, we don't sing very many lament psalms, but if you, and I mentioned this in one of my chapters in my book, if you look at American musical history, you'll find lament. Right. They're called African-American spirituals. That's right. mm-hmm. And it's really interesting that here's a segment of people who were oppressed and dealing with hardship. And they used the prayer language of lament in order to communicate to one another and to God. It's it's really instructive if we'll listen. Mark, I'm curious, as you've written about racial reconciliation and talked about it in your church and stuff, have you been encouraged by the response of people going, yeah, we want that? Or maybe have you been either surprised or discouraged by the pushback you get? You know, we don't need to talk about this in the church or other stuff. What's kind of the response been to all, all of this for you? It's been both. It's been deeply encouraging and deeply discouraging. Um, it just it is. Um, and in in some cases, you, you I've I've seen literally on a bus um, a, a person repent of their racist past and wow. be embraced and forgiven and and to completely transformed. And I've I've also seen people who just for any number of reasons don't think that this is an issue that we should be talking about um, or think that it's um, somehow unhelpful to the church. And um, it, it, it just it surfaces so many layers of pain and, and sinful responses. And it's um, it's just an opportunity, I think, for the grace of God to be applied. But it's not an easy application. And that's I think why it's such an important conversation for us still to try to have. See, and I'm, I'm fascinated by your story because uh, you are a pastor and an author. And candidly, some of the pushback that Brian and I have gotten over the last year or so with regards to some of the segments that we've done where we've talked about racial reconciliation, racial justice, uh, is people will often say, you guys are pastors. Just focus on the gospel, right? Just just talk about spiritual things. Why are you getting your hands dirty with these, like, quote, unquote, other hot button issues or topics. But what do you say to someone who genuinely believes that? Well, I think it's a legitimate concern that needs to be managed well. I don't think we should just write it off and just say, oh, that's a silly thing to say, because the gospel does absolutely matter. It is the central message. The thing we have to wrestle with then is what are the implications of the gospel? Like, we wouldn't say to somebody, look, 
just preach the gospel. Who cares about someone's morals? Like, mm. don't don't talk about pornography. Don't talk about adultery. Like, don't talk about any of that stuff. Just just preach the good news that Jesus died and saved people from their sins. So the implications of the gospel are really, really important. In fact, you know, James argues that if you don't understand the implications, you might actually understand the gospel. And so the question is, to what extent is racial harmony or ethnic unity or racial reconciliation a really important implication of the gospel? So we don't want to divorce it from the gospel, but that implication issue is is a really critical thing for us to think through. And it just seems to me that being a good neighbor, living out what it means to consider others' needs is more important than my own, Philippians chapter 2, and even seeing the story of the church, Jew and Greek, would mean that this ought to be something that the church should step into and not step away from. And so I, I receive that critique, I hear it, but I think it's an insufficient argument as to why we should ignore this issue. I, I think it's a vital issue for us to step into. Mm. Mark, with like the last minute or so that we have, as you've written about this and, and dove in with your own church, are you hopeful? Are you hopeful for the coming you know, years of the church? Or uh, I guess the opposite would be, are you, are you worried about where the church is heading right now? Well, I'm going to give you an unfortunate answer. I actually, I feel both. And depending on the day or the situation or the conversation that I'm having, like there, there is, you know, and there's always, isn't there a kind of a church within the church, so to speak, mm-hmm. or revival movements have uh, kind of a core group that then expands outward. I'm really hopeful because of the conversations that, that I'm hearing and seeing. And I, I think there's an opportunity for the church to step into it. I, I'm worried that the church in 2020 is going to do the same thing that the church did in the 1960s and the 1920s and the 1870s. And we have a very clear pattern. We just get to the point where we're ready to do something, and then we back away for any number of reasons. And I hope that that won't be the case. I think it would be naive to assume that it won't happen. So we need to be careful, hopeful, and optimistic, but at the same time, wise in how we consider this issue. Mm-hmm. Mark, we're really grateful for you joining us today. Could you give us a website, social media, where give us everything where somebody could find you if they want to hear more about what you're doing? Sure. Very good. So if you wanted my personal blog is at markvrogup.com, M-A-R-K-V-R-O-E-G-O-P.com. Our church's website where we have a host of sermons, including um, a three-part series on this particular subject uh, is yourchurch.com. And then I'm on uh, social media handles of Instagram, Twitter, and uh, Facebook. Great, Mark. Thanks so much for joining us today. That other voice you've been hearing is Mark Vrogop. He is lead pastor of College Park Church in Indianapolis and also author of the book, uh, Weep With Me, How Lament Opens, Do- Opens a Door for Racial Reconciliation. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, guys. Absolutely. You're, you're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Monday afternoon. Ian, I uh, want to jump into an article here from The Atlantic. But before we do, uh, I watched the end of the Detroit Lions game yesterday and thought of you. Uh, you had to have been like, this is an alternate universe. Did you see the end of the game yesterday? And it was it was everything that's usually the opposite of the Lions happened in their game yesterday. You know, it was funny because uh, this morning... I preached for this coming weekend on the upside down ways of the kingdom. <laughs> yes. I was watching the game thinking, this is a perfect example. This is it. I mean, 
That's maybe sacrilegious. Not that that game was the Beatitudes, but you get you get what I'm saying. Yeah, totally. It was wild from when the Atlanta Todd Gurley fell into the end zone and then you guys went down. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. And you and I have been doing this show long enough that as I'm watching this, I'm thinking Ian must be happy right now. (laughs) Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you for knowing that. And I don't know if anybody out there was watching the baseball games this weekend. Oh, were those good? The World Series. So So wild, uh, man. And then the Bears tonight. So lots of sports going on. Enjoy it now, you know, before the World Series is done. And uh, we'll just be left with football. But uh, good, good weekend of sports. Well, uh, at The Atlantic, an interesting article by Arthur Brooks, somebody that we tend to read often on this show, Arthur Brooks. Uh, He wrote an, an article at The Atlantic entitled this. Are we trading our happiness for modern comforts as society gets richer? People chase the wrong things. Why don't you get us into this article and then we'll talk about it. Do we read Arthur Brooks often? Is that? I think we do. Or is there another David Brooks or is it David Brooks <laughs> that we read often? Mel Brooks. <laughs> yeah, We've been reading a lot of Mel Brooks on the show. He's our, he's our, he's our muse for sure. Everybody you, Brooks. <laughs> you said that. I was like, this might be the second time ever that we've. <laughs> so it might be David Brooks that we read a lot. That's a good point. So we have referenced him before though. It's a really good article. Let me just uh, read yep. some of the beginning. It's one of the greatest paradoxes in American life is that why while on average existence has gotten more comfortable over time, happiness has fallen. According to the United States Census Bureau, average household income in the U.S. adjusted for inflation was higher in 2019 than has ever been recorded for every income quintile. Is that right? And I think although so. income inequality has risen, this has not been mirrored by inequality in the consumption of goods and services. For example, from 2008 to 2019, households in the lowest income quintile increased spending on eating out by an average of 22% after correcting for inflation. The top quintile increased spending on eating out by an average of just under 8%. Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. domestic government services have increased significantly. For example, federal spending on education, training, employment, and social services increased from 2000 to 2019 by about 30% in inflation-adjusted terms. That's actually a lot more than I anticipated. New American homes. Hi, Pippa. New American homes in 2016 were 1,000 square feet larger than in 1973, and living space per person on average has nearly doubled. The number of Americans who use the internet increased from 52% uh, 52% to 90% from 2000 to 2019. The percentage who use social media grew from 5 to 72% from 2005 to 2019. Here's the point. But amid these advances in quality of life across the income scale, average happiness is decreasing in the United States. The General Social Survey, which has been measuring social trends among Americans every one or two years since 1972, shows a long-term gradual decline in happiness and rise in unhappiness from 1988 to the present. Quick pause, Brian. Are you surprised by that or are you hearing this thinking, yeah, that's exactly what I anticipated? That's a little bit of both. I think as a pastor, we've preached this sermon, right, about uh, happiness being tied to what we have and being content and all this stuff. But I would say, seeing the statistics, I think it does surprise me. You would think on a very base level, having more and uh, having more access to things would make you happier. So I would say uh, that that I think we know enough Bible to know this doesn't surprise us. But again, I wouldn't I wouldn't have guessed it to be this if if it were. Uh, just, okay, here are the numbers. Do you think people are happier? I'd say, yeah, of course they're happier. How about you? Does this surprise you? Uh, it does surprise me a little bit for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is I'm surprised 
that people are as dialed into their unhappiness as this survey reveals. Mm. You know, sometimes it mm-hmm. it can be easy to think that like, oh, yeah, I have all these modern comforts, all these advances have been made. Therefore, I equate that to like deep ontological happiness. And it, it does honestly, maybe that's like weirdly optimistic that it gives me the sense that people are waking up to the fact that, oh, these things that I thought would make me happier, bring me comfort or satisfaction. I haven't, they actually haven't accomplished that. I think of Tim Keller's counterfeit gods, right? And this, this notion that we mm-hmm. will run after these things under the assumption or the lie that they will bring me value. And he goes on to say, there are several possible explanations for this paradox. It could be that people are uninformed about all of this amazing progress. It makes you think of a, a Louis CK bit where, you know, someone was complaining about their cell phone, not working for a second. He's like, it's going to space. Can you give it a second? Please? <laughs> oh, my phone was being weird for a second. He's like, it's a miracle. It's a miracle that the phone, if you send a text today and it gets there in three months, it's a miracle. Like that's, you know, where he's, his line was, everything's, ha- everything's amazing and nobody's happy. And I thought, wow, isn't that, wow. Isn't that insightful? So that's one of, the, one of the possible explanations that we're just not aware of it. You know, we just sort of, like you and I have joked a little bit about even, you know, this is a little... Uh, cheeky but like dial up days people young people hear about dial up and they're like how did you even survive you know like, are you right. kidding me we we thought we had arrived when we got dial up like this is the best this is the best era to be alive ever so i i think that's part of it that maybe we people just haven't been paying attention necessarily to some of these advances mm-hmm. i think that's true and and i also think uh it says you know, consumption doesn't lead to happiness. But but the sad part is, I think often our answer when consumption doesn't lead to happiness is to go, well, I just must not be consuming enough, mm-hmm. right? I need right. I need more of this. I need more of that. And 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 Brooks's argument here is going to be, and, and the science here says, no, no. When you do that, it's going to lead to greater unhappiness. You're gonna you're gonna realize, oh, I'm I'm worse off now that I even have more. But I would think, especially, I think I have that in me to go, okay. Uh, maybe if I just go to the nicer restaurant or just the bigger house or whatever, then I'm going to be happy. Uh, and we know biblically that's not true, but we also see that in this article is numbers here that that just doesn't prove out to be true. Yet we do that over and over and over again. Yeah, and I've referenced the TED talk a lot, but Sean Aker did a talk um, years ago on the science of happiness. And it's a lot of what Brooks is kind of, I think, outlining in this article that um, it's not accidental. It's not passive that we are, Consumers, we're not making up these narratives that buying this product will make me happy. That That is a very intentional marketed mantra. Um, and it doesn't ne- not necessarily have to be a product. You know, it, it could be a way of living or it could be uh, achieving some level of status. It's not accidental that we're somehow picking up on these messages. It's a multi-billion dollar corporation to get us to buy into the myth that you're miserable, but what will make you less miserable or maybe even cure your misery mm-hmm. is this next thing. And there's a lot of brains and a lot of creativity and a lot of money that goes into making sure that idea is implanted in our own conscious by whatever means necessary, to be honest. Yeah. And he closes by saying something really interesting. He says, uh, all this prosperity can blind us to the timeless sources of true human happiness. Here they are. He says, faith family, friendship, and work in which we can earn our success and serve others. He says, regardless of how the world might change, those have always been and will always be the things that deliver the satisfaction that we crave. And a little bit earlier, he says, the world encourages us to love things and use people, but that's backwards. Put this on your fridge and try to live by it. Love people, 
use things. So a, a fascinating article here at The Atlantic written by David Bro- uh, Arthur Brooks, written by Arthur Brooks. Are we trading our happiness for modern comforts? That's up on our Facebook page. We'd love to know what you think about it. Our Facebook page is The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next hour, stay with us. We're going to talk about pro-life evangelicals for Biden. And then we're going to jump back into John Piper's article at Desiring God, uh, talking about who he's going to vote for. We're going to do that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk politics, we're going to talk marriage, and can your family grow stronger during the pandemic? You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Really grateful to have you joining us today on this uh, cold Monday afternoon. Uh, at least no more snow coming down today as, as there was earlier today. Well, uh, if you missed any of our shows so far, you can find it on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. You can find it online at 1160hope.com. And of course, we have a podcast. Get that podcast wherever it is you get podcasts. Subscribe, rate, and review. Ian, somebody today told me that they enjoy, or yesterday told me that they enjoy listening to our podcast while they fold laundry. So put that one on the website, man. How about that one? Wow, that that is one heck of an endorsement, Brian. I, I can imagine seeing that on a homepage because it isn't saying necessarily that they like or don't like the show. It, the, whole, the whole quote is just, I listen while folding the laundry. Get it on T-shirt. <laughs> You're like, that's technically factual, I guess. It was it was done in a very complimentary way. So OK, good. Phew. So. <laughs> uh, and anyway, if you do listen to the podcast, as we said, subscribe, rate and review. Uh, we are grateful for those of you who do that. Well, Ian, are you aware that we are eight days out from an election? Have you heard of this? Oh, it didn't really snuck up on me, Brian. Haven't even been paying attention. <laughs> boy, oh boy. Really stuck up on me. Uh, and so obviously, as everybody knows, that uh, within the next eight days or so, uh, hopefully everybody within our listening audience of voting age will vote and choose either President Trump or Joe Biden or neither, uh, depending on how you want to vote. Uh, but there's this movement, and we read the article uh, a week or two ago. I believe it was written by Ron Sider and Richard Mao called Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden. Uh, and so that's kind of become a thing, not just evangelicals for Biden, but pro-life evangelicals for Biden. And a lot of people read that. It was up on our Facebook page. There was quite the uh, debate going on about that. Um about can you be a pro-life evangelical for Biden? Uh, but they put out this whole thing. People signed it. They signed their name. And well, now this probably won't surprise you. But what we're reading at Religion News uh, is this pro-life evangelicals for Biden signers face a fiery blowback. Let me read this. Let me get us into this. And I'm curious just what we do with this. So Joel Hunter, a high profile former Orlando megachurch pastor, knows the cost of deviating from fellow white evangelicals, nearly monolithic Republican Party backing. After he recently announced support for former Vice President Joe Biden, uh, a local Christian radio station canceled Hunter's devotionals, hosts withdrew or postponed speaking invitations, and a social media hostility barrage erupted. But Hunter remains unbowed, and his ironic, self-deprecating sense of humor is intact. At the age of 72, he said, I'm a tough 
old bird. The article goes on to say, zealous Christians stopped burning heretics at the stake years ago. But today, many white evangelicals have drawn a clear line for what constitutes acceptable dissent. They are exacting a considerable, if less incendiary, price uh, for those crossing it. Uh, Hunter goes on to say there is some sort of connection that can be traced through history, through some strands of almost hysterical Christianity. In times of high stress, you exaggerate the wrongness of the other side so you can justify both your own righteousness and your own overreaction in fighting what you see as the enemy. Pro-life evangelicals for Biden, which Hunter helped launch, insist that while they uniformly oppose abortion, the Christian electoral agenda should not be confined to reproductive rights. So let me stop there, Ian, and ask you this. Probably not surprised if I know you well enough, but what do you think is causing people uh, to lash out at people who are saying, you know what, I'm pro-life, I'm an evangelical, but I'm going to vote for Joe Biden? Why do you think people are going so hard at people who are stating that? Well, I, one, I do wonder if as many people are, as you said, going hard against him here as maybe is, I don't know, it feels like, Every headline I come across right now is this group is outraged. This person is facing fiery backlash. This person, part of me just wonders like, okay, how, how true is any of that? I guess I'm not, you know, I'm, reading, I'm reading that there's, you know, 500 signatures. Like I realize that's a, that's a real thing. I, I'm always trying to at least hit pause long enough to realize, okay, what flames are trying to be stoked and by whom with this, mm. whatever it is on either side, you know, right or left, conservative, progressive, whatever. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I could probably I mean, I think anyone listening could probably guess the reasons he'd be receiving some pushback. Uh, I do think it's interesting that it feels like people are getting canceled all over the place. Right. It's a it's a topic that you and I have tackled a number of times in a mm-hmm. number of different arenas. So I, I think for if I had to put myself in the mind of maybe somebody who has signed, they would say, Here, here's a guy who does not care about the life of unborn babies. Therefore, uh, not only will I not support him, but I think everyone else should know. Any Bible-proclaiming Christ followers should know not to support him. And uh, I would imagine that's the that's the engine, that's the fire behind a, a lot of this, this outrage. One of the things I have found interesting, and maybe it's just because we're doing a show, so I'm more dialed in, or maybe it is uh, something kind of of change. I do feel like so much of the focus of this year's election for evangelicals Uh, And I understand that's painting with a really broad brush there uh, is abortion. You and I looked at that Pew Research thing last week that said abortion for white evangelicals, number one issue by a lot. But what I've seen, and I'm curious if you've kind of sensed the same thing in the the people in your circles, is people trying to wrestle with uh, how does abortion affect uh, the race and what's actually going to bring abortions uh, down, right? So Sky Jitani and Phil Vischer over at the Holy Post did that. Uh, what I thought was a bit of a remarkable video the other day, 15 minutes long, uh, about kind of the history of abortion. I feel like there's this a movement might be too strong a word right now, but but there's there's this whole kind of undergirding right now going on that's saying I'm anti-abortion. I want babies to be saved. But can we have a big conversation about how that is going to best happen? Am I right about that? Do you feel that in, in your social media feeds and other places right now? Yeah, I mean, I I feel a couple of things in my social media feeds. One, uh, it's not a great place for this kind of dialogue. So, you know, <laughs> if, if you if you post a a two hundred word summary of what you just said on your Facebook wall, you're going to be uh, cheered and martyred. Like, it's mm-hmm. not it's it the forum itself. 
uh, it's just not set up for that kind of dialogue. I think what Sky did um, was was intelligent and balanced and even and fair, but it still was a monologue. It still was a 15-minute video, uh, highly produced video. And I've seen a number of people, friends of mine, very, very – I mean, way smarter than me, uh, offer their disagreements with Sky's findings and with that mm-hmm. – perspective and some of the data you know so i i know that it's not like well he made this 15 minute video totally solved this decades old <laughs> argument that's all we needed was this you know what i mean but he answered the abortion question once right and for all <laughs> but i've heard a number of other people say i i, I didn't know that or that there's yeah. new information there so so that gives me some hope that even though that's not a, a true dialogue something not only just something that's intelligent but something that's put together with a certain level of, of grace i think and it's it's winsome, I guess, if I could use that word. Like it doesn't feel like it's it's shaming or exclude. You know, there's it's a very invitational kind of. I think uh, I thought the video was really well done, but um, m- m- most of what he offered in it was not new information. So part of what you know, if I'm trying to think about the thing beneath the thing, for me, it's like a lot of this information has been out for a long time, and yet we keep getting kind of sucked into. Um, a lot of the, you know, us versus them or this slogan versus that slogan type of mentality. And that's the part that I, I sometimes think is the most difficult for us to kind of break out of. Yeah. And so the election coming up and uh, these next eight days are going to be highly energized, highly charged. And uh, one last thing we would say, I would say is uh, just be careful. Uh, Christ followers, be careful these next eight days on your social media feed as you're talking to family, whatever else. And uh, hopefully... Uh, We're going to see. It's going to be an interesting eight days. Well, coming up next, we read last week John Piper's blog in its entirety from from Desiring God, but we didn't get a chance to talk about it. Well, we are going to rectify that next as we talk about John Piper's uh, blog, Policies, Persons, and Paths to Ruin. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today on, Ian, uh, which holidays might we be celebrating today? I'm so glad you asked, Brian. Some real hard-hitting holidays that I'm sure a lot of people (laughs) will be interested in. Not the least of which is National Mule Day. I don't know if that's like... (laughs) <laughs> like the animal or like a drug mule. I probably shouldn't go there. National with animal. National yes. mince meat day. I don't know if you're a mince meat fan or not. I, I don't think I am. <laughs> have you have you had it? Do you know if you are? You just don't like the way it sounds. I just don't like the way it sounds. That's right. I, I don't blame you. Terrible branding from the uh, mince meat department. Uh, it's National Tennessee Day. So uh, hats off to you, Tennessee. It's also. <laughs> National Financial Crime Fighter Day. <laughs> Superheroes. <laughs> but, a na- but, a, but specifically in the financial sector. Like that's National Financial Crime Fighter Day. And then appropriately, it's National Pumpkin Day, which I cannot believe I haven't seen more, uh, more hellabaloo for that. That just feels like a thing that people should be celebrating. The more you do these, the more surprised I am how often there's just a national day for a particular state. Like the other day, you were like, it's National Kentucky Day. You're like, okay. Yeah, why not? <laughs> Today I'm sure there's a national. reason behind it. Who knows? I'm sure. Uh, I, I'm guessing there is. The other ironic thing that I was thinking about the other day is that like on big holidays, we don't do the show together. So we do all these holidays, but you're never going to get to be like, well, it's Christmas. <laughs> it's Thanksgiving. Oh, I don't know if that's actually <laughs> ironic, but I do. Yeah, it's sad. It's ironic in Atlantis, in Atlantis Morissette type of way. You know, that mm. it's probably not the actual definition of the word, but it fits. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> Half of our audience is like, who? Exactly. Oh, anyway, last week, all over uh, Twitter, Facebook, especially for those of us who are in the Christian world, uh, was the, the viral post of the week was John Piper at Desiring God. He wrote one called Policies, Persons, and Paths to Ruin, Pondering the Implications of the 2020 Election. And I don't know, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday, you and I thought it was an important enough document, an important enough blog post that we gave eight minutes, I think, to reading the entire thing. Uh, so we're not going to do that again. You can find it up on our Facebook page. To sum up, uh, Piper basically, without saying it, basically says, I'm not voting for either of these guys, more or less, uh, if you read between the lines, saying that the policies of one uh, he can't handle, but the uh, but the personal character of, of Donald Trump he has trouble with, and he really goes into that as well. And as you can imagine, it created a, uh, what would we uh, we'll call it a firestorm? We'll call it a firestorm. Mm-hmm. And you and I didn't get a chance to discuss it because we thought it was important to read it in its entirety. But I do think it's important for us to reflect upon it a little bit. Uh, and so, you know, I'm curious. We read through it. You've read it. Uh, what did you, what, what was just your general takeaway uh, the first, second time you read Piper's words there? <laughs> I mean, this probably isn't the answer that you were looking for, but I took me a couple of reads to actually believe that it was Piper writing. It. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so like, if I'm really honest, the first time someone sent it to me with like the wide eyed emoji and that was it. And <laughs> nice. I was like, Oh, what's this all about? And I read it and I go, I understand the emoji now that, so yeah, I, I guess, um, at first blush, it was sort of like, I'm, I'm surprised to see this from Piper as I imagine other people were, uh, the other article that we've linked to here are a bunch of other people's responses and who boy are some of them unkind. Now I would love to know where some of these are coming from because a lot of it feels like people who were like deeply embedded in what you would call maybe Piper's camp were like, ah, yeah. He's totally woke now. You know, like, <laughs> wait, hold on, hold on, everybody. Like that's, and again, you know, say what you will about wokeness or about progressivism or or any of that, but uh, it is pretty interesting. Again, not that surprising what some of the blowback has been. On the other side, I've seen a number of people share like, oh, like I, I saw probably half a dozen people say, "2020 just gets weirder." I never in a million years <laughs> thought I'd be sharing a Piper article. And you're like, okay, all right, so that's. I don't know. Like, do you do you think there's any sort of nefarious motive? You're like, oh, he's just trying to gain some level of relevance or notoriety again. So he's like, he's switching sides or reaching right. across the aisle and some, you know, in a in, a, in an effort to kind of get some notoriety back. Do you sense any of that, or do you do you really believe that this is Piper's conviction? For me, never having met John Piper, but read a lot of his stuff, I think there's zero percent chance that that's what's going on here. Like the last. <laughs> The last two people I would expect in the Christian world to do that would be Piper and Tim Keller. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, I think this has always been Piper. He wrote something like this in 2017 or 18. That's right. Uh, I think this is him just going. Now, I do think there's probably some freedom when you're no longer the pastor of a church anymore where, you know, you've got Sky Jatani told us that I remember a couple of months ago. He said, well, I, I do have that freedom. Uh, but I think. I think this is just Piper going, listen, my heart is for the church. I'm speaking yeah. also here to pastors. Here's your calling. Uh, and I think a lot of us are going down the wrong path. I resonated surprisingly a lot how much I resonated with what Piper had to write here. Mm-hmm. Um, and because, 
the 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 kind of political uh, nomadness, nomadness, no nom- uh, the nomadic lifestyle that he kind of described. Going, I, I have problems with both sides here, and uh, I think what people were surprised, and I don't think they should be if they've read Piper before, is how hard he went in. Uh, and also because if people probably were guessing beforehand, they would have said, well, he's a conservative. There's nobody more conservative. He's, <laughs> he's, you know, uh, nothing if not theologically conservative and old school. And so I think that uh, that probably would have surprised people when they're seeing MacArthur and other people line up behind Trump. They would have if they didn't know Piper before, they probably would have thought that's where he would be. And you're right. The blowback has been unbelievable. This article, you, you, like you said, you linked to someone here just wrote, Mr. Piper sounds like an unsaved person. I never thought much of him and his false teachings. You're like, really? <laughs> like, <laughs> that is something. But I don't know, man. I felt like uh, a lot of people that I know really kind of resonated with what Piper uh, said there. And truthfully, I did as well going, okay, uh, it made me feel good that somebody that I've always respected someone like John Piper. I don't agree with everything he writes for sure, but uh, I've had always had a respect for Piper and to see him kind of get out on a limb here uh, and kind of put this out there. I think for a lot of us was like, okay, that is kind of, uh, again, not a hundred percent, but there are things in there that I can really resonate with. And I'm thankful that he wrote it. And so, uh, yeah, certainly gutsy. Uh, I don't think there was an ounce of like, I'm trying to get an angle here. So people will buy more of my books or whatever else. And we all know people do that. I think Piper said, this is what needs to be said. This is what I believe. And, and, and I need to say this pre-election. I think that's all there was to this. Yeah. One of the comments uh, kind of summarizes a lot of what I've been hearing. He says, I'm not voting for a pastor. I'm voting for the best president in my lifetime, 73 years. President Trump is a born again, spirit filled believer who among us didn't have many rough edges that needed smoothing out when we were new believers. I'm always amazed by the level of deception and spirit of religion that is so prevalent in the comments on this site. It seems so many commenters have planks in their eyes. It's actually quite sad. Hmm. So maybe we'll have another chance between the election where I think a lot of, a lot of what I'm hearing people say is how in the world can Piper conflate, um, the death of unborn babies was someone who's maybe, you know, like this writer says, has some rough edges. Like they don't even seem like they're in the same stratosphere, which I would, I would love to know your thoughts on sometime. It feels like that's the comparison. A lot of people are making like, okay, so one guy is like a little gruff and a little abrasive in interviews. And another guy is perfectly fine with dead babies. How, how can you even put them in the same category? And I think that is probably, if I had to guess the, the summation of a lot of the pushback to the article. Absolutely. So I would love to have that conversation. I also, this is a little off subject. This is what people keep saying about him and other people. Uh, One of these, let's find an article or just have a conversation. I was reading another article this week about yet another person being called quote unquote woke. And I just like, I want to talk about what that actually means. (laughs) And like, Mm, what are we saying when we talk about somebody and say that? Because that's getting thrown around all the time now. But Uh, I would love for you, if you haven't read John Piper's article, Desiring God, it is well worth your time. It might make you really angry. It might make you just stand up and say amen. Uh, But either way, it'll get your mind working as we lead into the election. We've got that up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. We've talked a lot of politics and other things around the election. Next, I want to talk about an article at a relevant magazine from Craig Craig Groeschel. In which he says this, your marriage will be as good as you both decide it will be. We're going to talk marriage next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. 
Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. So, Ian, it's been a while since you've, when I've asked you, how are you doing? You've said tired, but you had one of those parenting nights, didn't you? Sound like uh, uh, you're you're soldiering on here, but uh, working on a little sleep, aren't you? I'm I'm sure people who have listened to the entire show are like, yeah, that's obvious. So soldiering on <laughs> is probably being generous. I am. It's just one, just one of those days. It's not just tired. I think people who are in like any kind of communications role can understand. It's not just like a feeling of sleepiness. It's also like I can't string together like so a full true. sentence, like a full thought. And somebody might be listening, thinking, "How is that different than Ian normally?" Like, touche. I hear what you're saying. It's it's extra impaired when you're sleep deprived. You're like, what are we talking about? How are we? That's that's actually legitimately terrifying. <laughs> yes, yes, and and there's those days, and I, you and I have talked about this a million times since we started the show. Uh, you're in a stage of parenting that I was in, but I'm no longer in, and that stage is exhilarating, awesome, and boy, is it exhausting. (laughs) So uh, with the messed up sleep schedule. So uh, hopefully, hey, just two more segments, man, and then uh, you can go to bed. (laughs) No, I cannot. (laughs) No, you cannot. Uh, Craig Grishel. Craig Grishel is lead pastor of Life Church at Life Church, one of the biggest uh, churches or our connection of churches out of Oklahoma, one of the biggest ones in the country. Uh, Craig Grishel, uh leads Life Church and does a lot of writing, a lot of speaking. And he wrote this at Relevant. And I found it interesting. You and I uh, both married, been married for, I've been married a little over 20 years. Where are you at? Three, four years, five years? <laughs> what are you at now? Yeah, we just, just crossed the four-year mark. Okay, five is the big one coming up. Okay. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so... Uh, Different stages, not just of parenting, but also of marriage. But Grishel wrote something very interesting at Relevant that I just want to read it. It's quick. Uh, and I wonder if you think this is true, it, what, what he gets right here. So it's entitled this. Your marriage will be as good as you both decide it will be. Grishel goes, most people know the off-stated quote, oft-quoted stat uh, close to 50%. <laughs> Remember what you are just saying about being tired and not being able to string anything together? Sorry. I tried so hard not to laugh. That is that was I just that's, said, a, that's a move off, I would make. <laughs> off stated quote instead of off quoted stat. <laughs> uh, no anyway, one else is laughing as hard at this as we are. I, I caught your tiredness. There you go. You passed it on. Uh, it says close to fifty percent of marriages end in divorce. This number can be daunting for those already married or considering marriage. The good news is that we can reverse that trend. We can lead a new wave of marriages that are stronger than ever. Our marriages can do more than just survive. They can thrive. I'm often asked, Grishel says, what's the secret to never giving up in marriage? It's easier than you think. Early in our marriage, my wife and I stumbled across a truth that has made all the difference. In fact, it's so simple, it would be easy to underestimate just how powerful it can be in your life. Here's what it is. We decided our marriage will be as good as we decide it will be. The same is true for you, Grishel writes. Your marriage will be as good as both of you decide it will be. You can choose to never give up. See, marriage means persevering. It means never giving up on each other or on God's ability to do the impossible. That no matter where you and your spouse find yourselves right now, I hope you'll both decide your marriage is worth fighting for. If you're married, think back to when you were first getting to know each other. Even though you were madly in love, you probably noticed you were very different. 
All of those unusual quirks he had and the unique outlook she had on life caught your attention and attracted you at first. Eventually, both of you began thinking, I know we're really different, but I actually think our personalities complement each other. After all, it's like opposites attract. Once you got married, somewhere along the way, things uh, likely got complicated. It may be true that at least while you're dating, opposites attract. But once you're married, opposites often attack. Those little quirks that used to be so cute and charming quickly become the annoying habits and stubborn stupidities that drive you crazy and make you argue. Uh, You can return to attracting rather than attacking. Accept your spouse for who they are not who uh, you want them to be. Your spouse may never be ready on time. They may forget to put the toilet seat down or put the cat back on the toothpaste. Remember that the differences are not only okay, but they are what attracted you in the first place. Let me pause there. What do you think about his premise, this really simple thing he says is true, that your marriage will be as good as you both decide it will be. You can choose to never give up. Do you find that to be truthful and helpful marriage counseling right there? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna sound like a jerk. I only I only partially agree with that. I get okay. what he's getting at. It feels a little simplistic to me. A little to me, what it what it doesn't factor in, what what it doesn't take into consideration, I guess, are like very real elements of mental illness or addiction mm. or family of origin stuff. And I think honestly, sometimes the problem is you just keep deciding to not give up to keep doubling down without actually doing any of the interior work and getting the the counseling with it, which you could argue, maybe that's a a way of fighting for your marriage or not giving Mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the mantra that like, Hey, it's only as good as you decide it will be. Again, I realize it's a short blog and it's meant to be concise and, and sort of pithy. I, I think it's, I think the decision obviously is part of it, right? You can't, you won't pursue mental health or interior health or any of those things. If, if you haven't actually decided to, to stay in it, but I, yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's more nuanced than that. It's not less than this, but I, I think it might possibly be more. That's a valid point. I do. Now that you say that, I think he's talking uh, about uh, the drift that often happens in marriages, as opposed to like those cataclysmic break events, right. Or those cataclysmic right. Uh, things because, but even, but even lot. like with mental health though, sometimes that is a drift. Sometimes it isn't, cat- it isn't point. right. It's not like infidelity or some kind of traumatic. Sometimes it, those are the things that are contributing to the drift. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Uh, Cause he certainly seems to be talking about what are the things that annoy you about your spouse? Sure. What are the things that are causing you uh, that might've been cute in the beginning? Uh, because it is true. I remember when Carrie and I were doing premarital counseling uh and the lady uh, who was doing our premarital counseling asking us, tell us about your tell me about your last fight. And we laughed. We were 21 at the time. And we laughed and we said, oh, we never fight. And this lady was like, you guys are in trouble <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> because right. you see her point being you're going to fight in marriage. And uh, and this. So, and so on that level, I do resonate with the hey, we're going to we're going to uh, we're going to commit to fight well and we're going to commit to uh, totally. never um to loving each other, even when things are hard and when we're annoyed. But I do think you make a really valid point. Things do really change and can, and that maybe uh, the move towards saying we're going to stay in this is like, uh, is really intense marriage counseling (laughs) or it's uh, really intense something else. And so uh, what I, I, off of this though, what would you give one pastoral word? Would you give to a couple out there that's listening right now going, I don't know that I want to stay in this. I'm just, we're, I'm not, not sure that, 
I want to do this anymore. What would you say to that couple out there right now? Gosh, I, I mean, there's a lot of things I would say that would differ depending on the circumstance. Like, well, the other thing mm-hmm. this article doesn't take into consideration is someone who's in an abusive relationship where they're legitimately emotionally or physically in danger. Right? He talks about, hey, to avoid the incompatibility trap, you know, decide to accept your differences as a God-given tool to strengthen your relationship. Yeah, differences for sure. Abuse. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. Like that's that's where I think mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. either way, regardless of what the circumstance is, inviting trusted people into the conversation, because I think every marriage goes through seasons where one of the parties or both parties feel like, ah, I don't kind of lost its spark or lost its luster. That doesn't mean that you need to bail, but sometimes you just need trusted people to kind of encourage you, walk alongside you, speak truth and also, you know, speak truth into you. It's not it's not always necessarily just your you know, your spouse's issue. A lot of times mm-hmm. that's a lot of stuff that. Maybe you need to deal with too. So I guess in short, the answer is community. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's amazing how often that's the answer for things that we give, isn't it? And I think yeah. it's because it is foundational. So uh, it's a good article for you to te- check out up on our Facebook page written by Craig Gershell, uh about marriage. And uh, coming up next, let's end the show this way at the Gospel Coalition. Eat, pray, love. How families grow stronger during the pandemic. That's coming up next here. Common Good. AIM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. We're really glad that you've been with us for this Monday show. Uh, Ian, we've been talking for the last, gosh, what are we now? Seven months, eight months into a pandemic, uh, seven months now. And been discussing ever since week one about uh, the hardships of it, but also the opportunities of it. Now, this is presupposing you don't get sick. So this is pandemic when you're not sick, uh, but all the kind of the ancillary things of shutdowns and other things. Uh, and this article at the Gospel Coalition written by Joe Carter talks about how families grow stronger during the pandemic. And your family's at a uh, very interesting spot with little, little kids. But I'd be curious with whatever you're willing to share. Do you feel like the pandemic has strengthened your family? It has stressed out your family, a little bit of both. What's been the result up to this point on your family? Yeah, I don't think I'd say a little bit of both. I'd say a lot of bit of both. That is, uh, there's, there's certainly been some heightened stress. I mean, even, you know, so we had like a, a a light dusting of snow this morning Mm -hmm. and I, I left because, you know, we film messages uh, in the building. And so I had to do that. And then I had to do like a follow-up interview and I, I came back and the, you know, the boys are, I don't think this is oversharing. They're just like screaming all over the place and they're like moving the <laughs> chairs all around the, and my wife looks at me and she's like, it's going to be a long winter. <laughs> like, <laughs> like this is a, this is a taste, you know, like for as crazy as, you know, my son just turned uh, three actually. So a three and a one and a half year old, um, there still were times when it was nice. I'd say, just go, all right, go play in the backyard. And we had a little hose and a little sandbox and we could go burn off some steam or take take a walk um if you remember when this all started it was quite cold and yeah we also didn't know how to navigate anything else so it feels like i'm a little more hopeful going into the cold months again because we have some now established like digital rhythms i'm like i have a little more up my sleeve with regards to how to deal with this but there is certainly there's still a very real closeness that it's brought. Like I can pop up a few times throughout the day and just give them a quick hug or like read a book with them. Um, I've gotten to better rhythms and like evening walks or them. Like I've really, really yeah. some just more like FaceTime with my family. So yeah, I would definitely say both. And they both, I mean, both sides have been hard, but um, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm grateful for it. You, you, you guys know where you land on that, on that continuum. 
Yeah, I think for us, it's exactly what you said that there when I'm going to look back someday on this time, I'm there's stuff like uh, from the pandemic season that I'll miss because a lot more family meals, right? A lot less meetings out. Uh, it, it was a lot more. Uh, like you said, especially in the summertime, family walks and this and that. I do think my family has grown stronger uh, through this and more close. Uh, but then there's also the stress of my kids' lives and, and our lives. My wife and I just all the normalcy of it turned upside down. And can we do this? And can we do that? And when is when are we going back to school? And so there's also been high stress. And so it's been, like you said, a little bit of both. Uh, but I feel like uh, there have been some rhythms, uh, eating together, uh, going out together that have just been really sweet, to be honest with you. And again, mm-hmm. I know this presupposes not being sick. That's like right. that's what the pandemic right. is about. But there is. And so we understand that. Like I'm not un, I'm not downplaying that. Uh, but but apart from that, there are some things that have been sweet uh, that that hopefully will become part of rhythms in this Gospel Coalition article, they say. Uh, about families cl- growing closer during the time of hardship, it says more than half of Americans reported eating dinner together every day, while another one in four report- reported eating together weekly or a few times a week, uh, and so on and so forth. So half of Americans say that their marriage or relationship is about the same as two years ago, while another 43% say it's stronger. Uh, similarly, more than half say their family relationships are about the same, while 30 percent say it's stronger. And so it goes on and on and on about how it's getting stronger. Um, it says a near majority agreed the pandemic has deepened their commitment to their marriage and their relationship. A solid majority said the pandemic has not caused them to question the strength of their marriage. And so all this stuff, it says, so what does it mean? The pandemic has been deeply destructive and forced many Americans to radically change it despite enduring periods of hardship. Many families are drawing closer together and developing positive patterns of behavior, uh, including things like sharing a meal together. I guess I'd ask this question. Why do you think something like uh, as big as the pandemic is having this effect on families? And why do you think families are saying, you know what, we're at least the same, if not growing closer. Because I remember when this all started, and this has happened for some people, when this all started, we said, man, marriages are going to just fall apart because people are confined together in this net. And some of the data is not saying that. Why do you think just general hardship or this hardship in general seems to be bringing people back together? Yeah. I mean, I think from the perspective of social sciences, it makes sense that like a disruption this large would necessitate or the very least motivate individuals and families to seek a new rhythm, a new normal, some kind of, you know, when the ground beneath you feels like it's just crumbling, I think it's human nature to want to grasp at something that feels predictable or stable. You know, Uh, Mm -hmm. I think we, regardless of, you know, your Enneagram or Myers-Briggs, I think that's just human nature. So when something like this on such a large scale happens, um, people will run to any sort of, you know, sometimes it's vices, you know, we've done other articles on uh, how yeah, yeah. how up alcohol sales have been in the United States and in Illinois in particular. Um, but I think even after maybe some of that shock initially in March, April, May began to level off a little bit, I think people realized just how out of whack some of even their like original rhythms were. It wasn't just, oh, I now have this new reality and I got to like figure out new habits and rhythms. It was also like, it gave people enough time to to pause and see with a fresh set of eyes, like, wait a minute, 
my previous rhythms were out of whack and I was working 90 hours a week and I didn't actually see my kids and I was yeah. eating all this fast food. And I, I don't think I like that. I think it, it provided for a lot of people again, like you said, with the asterisks, like apart from those, you know, who are devastated by the virus in some way, shape or form provided an opportunity. It's it was like a, like a forced wilderness, like a, almost like a forced type of Sabbath where part mm-hmm. of the purpose of Sabbath is to step back, breathe and reexamine like, okay, is this the kind of life I want to be living? Is this the kind of person I want to be coming? And I think that's what led a lot of people to say, nope, um, I haven't been making time for my family or for exercise the way that I, I should. And uh, I'm going to, I'm going to establish rhythms. Now uh, the curious thing for me will be a year from now, you know, when we have a vaccine and things start to go back to some level of normal, will we still maintain the healthy, positive habits and rhythms that we established during a time of pandemic? I think that, I think that'll be really interesting to see. Yeah, with our the end of our show here, last couple last minute or two, I'm wondering, let's pretend, let's fast forward a year from now. What is one rhythm in your life, be it family, personal, whatever else it might be, you choose. What's one rhythm that you're like, man, I want that to be a part of my life that kind of started or was accentuated in the pandemic. That's one I want to carry over. Yeah, I'm, there's so many, man. That you know, I mentioned the the evening walks with my boys, much like harder to one, do yeah. in the winter. That's a really yeah. important one. The uh, scripture before screens, that's, that's been really helpful. That's, you know, you just even putting your phone in a different room at night, not having it by your bedside. You know, I've been doing this, this Lectio 365 devotional or the, the prayer app, just pausing throughout the day just to, to briefly step away from a screen and pray. Um, th- things like that have, have been, they, they seem so insignificant, but they, for me personally, they've just been, they've been huge. How about you? Yeah, I I just want to like a year from now if things are back to normal, I still want to be home as much as I'm home at night. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just really there's something about nighttime from dinner till bedtime as a family yeah. that I think is so easy to get lost because you've got this group or you have this meeting and meetings are important, they happen. Um but hopefully we've found some sort of rhythm, some equilibrium as you said that says, you know what, I can still be a good parent, a good mom, a good dad and be home uh more than I was before. And so I hope that I don't go back to the what I was a year ago. And I wasn't out a ton, but I was out more for sure. Uh, but just that sweet family time that I think uh, has been wonderful. And so uh, that's it, the Gospel Coalition, Eat, Pray, and Love, How Families Grow Stronger During the Pandemic. But wanted to end the show that way just to say, uh, ask you, maybe reflect upon your own life. What are the rhythms that you are currently doing that you hope are part of your life uh, going forward. Well, we're really glad that you joined us today. If you missed any of the show, you can find it on our podcast. You can also find everything we've done here at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. We'll be back tomorrow from four until six. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Have a great day. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.